Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. You know the history. Las Vegas grew up as a little town that was strategically located on the railroad line between Los Angeles and Salt Lake City. State leaders eventually legalized gambling, then big-name entertainers visited, and suddenly it was a tourism mecca in the middle of the desert. Today, millions live in the metropolitan area, and just like other cities and counties in America, Las Vegas suffers from a loss of civility, thanks to social media, political division, and even our own academic institutions, our culture is suffering. On today's show, filmmaker and author Darius Kamali joins us to discuss what's causing this, and more importantly, what can be done to improve the current climate. The Vegas Never Sleeps team of Vegas experts is here as well. Your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, talks about dumb things that are being discussed in Vegas right now. Mr. Big is here too and is discussing the Vegas mob's influence in the development of Israel back in the late 1940s. The Wizard of Odds is here discussing what else, betting props on the Super Bowl. And finally, a new feature, the development of Vegas architecture and the parallels to American style. It's a question everybody asks. It's the individual versus the group. Where do we stand? we got a fascinating guy coming on to talk about this. He's a Hollywood producer. You sure have seen his work. A. Darius Kamali. He's been in Hollywood for a couple of decades doing this. Television documentaries, feature animations. And now he's in the world of publishing. He's got a couple of great books we're going to talk about that just been out. Mistake of Identity and Dog Whistling Dixie. Past the graveyard. I love that name. <laughs> well, that's a nice intro. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, Darius, I find this fascinating because everybody talks about the individual's rights and so forth, but we're seeing a, a change in this country where a lot of our discussions and so forth are all about group-based things, and this kind of caught you. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is something that I've been thinking about basically my whole life. Um, if you look at my background, whether it's my ethnic background, my national background, I'm an immigrant from Iran. My family came here during the revolution, um, wasn't a fun time. (laughs) And, uh, of course, uh, my philosophy background uh, in terms of education, uh, I've been thinking about these issues for a very long time. And, of course, working in Hollywood, I don't have to tell anyone that uh, it's it's basically group and identity obsessed at this point in our culture. Um, You know, I I think the the groupist, uh, as I call it, game, it's it's inevitable in a way. It's, I would say it's even necessary, sometimes even, you know, psychologically or socially beneficial, uh, you know, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, so long as we, you know, don't forget that it's essentially a game. Uh, uh, in sports, uh, you know, the analogy I like to sometimes give is the athlete doesn't forget that it's a game, even though he might be a, a, a Laker or a Yankee or whatever it might be. 
When it comes down to race, though, or gender or nationality, uh, sexuality now, um, most have sort of forgotten that, that it shouldn't be their essential identity. Um, To paraphrase uh, one of the actual musings in Mistake of Identity, uh, one of my two books, uh, I see Western civilization's groupist games as being metaphorically uh, sort of as absurd as a game of musical chairs, and it's being played on the deck of a sinking ship. And so, you know, I don't see this getting any better unless there is, I see no political solution. There has to be a psychological, or if you, if you will, a spiritual solution uh, if we're going to get past it. Yeah, and I think it's essential because I think as we do that, you're right, everybody's splitting into groups, and you can see that. And I think in Hollywood, it's a great place where you see all that. So where do we go? I, I, I kind of yeah, see well, it as an absence of, uh, it's kind of an absence of God. Is that kind of how you see it? You know, By God, I mean who everybody's a spiritual leader or so forth or whoever. We just don't have that, and consequently, these have sort of replaced that. You know, I think ultimately we are all essentially, I mean, you use the word God in Eastern so-called spirituality. They use the word Atman. Uh, if you want to go to, you know, the psychological tradition, I think the Jungian term would be something like collective unconscious. I think we're basically talking about the same thing here, using different terminology. But essentially that we are all essentially a soul, right? And if you didn't choose uh, the nation that you were born in, or the gender, which none of us do, obviously, or the race, then uh, it's very problematic for it to be your fundamental identity. Um, there's got to be, even in our language, if I can throw this in, I think we intuitively, just through our grammar and syntax, realize that the fundamental self is different than those characteristics. And that's obvious in our use of language when we say, for example, I have a body. Uh, we don't say, I am the body. We say, I have, right? right? And we say, I have a brain. We even go so far, we say, I have a mind. We don't say, I am the mind. And so... The implication is, who is this I <laughs> that has these things, that is separate from these things? That present, well, that I is exactly the same in you as it is in me. That's kind of the, the, the basis of, uh, of, of all this. And if you try to, you know, mystics have said this forever. This is not a new idea, obviously. But um, if you try to apply that to the world of uh, the practical world, the world of politics, then you get some very strange results. Sometimes... The results seem like they're from the left. Sometimes they look like they're, they're solutions from the right, because I think it really transcends both those things. Back with more in just a moment from Darius Kamali, whose career bridges human rights advocacy and film and media. But first, it's Super Bowl weekend, and that means bets on the game, including those weird little bets called prop bets, where you can bet on anything from the toss of the coin to the scores at the end of each quarter. But are they good bets? Well, let's ask the Wizard of Odds, Michael Shackelford. Obviously, like football, for example, you can bet during the season and everybody understands odds. But like Super Bowl or some of these events come in, there's all these goofy uh, things. Who's the first guy to score? Who's going to win the coin toss or whatever? Is that something people should stay away, away from unless they just want to have fun and they don't really care? Yeah, it's funny you ask that. Is I have analyzed Super Bowl prop bets to death, and I used to bet very large amounts of money on the Super Bowl prop bets. And I have what I call on my website a Super Bowl prop bet calculator. It's getting a little bit data, dated, 
so I wouldn't trust it too much. But it has. But you can just put in a point spread and a total, and it'll tell you what I think the fair line should be on like a hundred different props, like team to score first, will the first score be a touchdown, under three and a half field goals, all that kind of stuff. But if unless you're going to do your homework and know something about the odds, I would recommend staying away from those prop bets because they typically have 30 cent juice and whereas you could get 20 cent just betting against the spread but if you must bet prop bets here's some very good and simple advice bet unders for example under three and a half field goals under five and a half touchdowns under 30 and a half total first downs under 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 and if it's a simple bet on something to happen or not like Will there be a safety? Will Peyton Manning throw an interception? Bet the no. So bet on things not to happen. Thanks, Michael. And remember to visit Michael's site where you can learn everything about gaming and odds. It's called wizardofodds.com. That's wizardofodds.com. And speaking of sports, for great classic sports, it's Sports R-A-C-X which is available on radio stations nationwide and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports R-A-C-X. It's short for Sports Rock and Tours. And later today on Sports Rock and Tours, we present part two of our two-part series on the relationship between Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson and the breaking of the color line in Major League Baseball. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Jelly Jelly adjective Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services AdoptUSKids and the Ad Council You hear Mr. Big every week on this show. Now Mr. Big invites you to visit him online and save some money. All his books are now on Kindle, and he's got a variety of books, fiction and nonfiction, including The Life and Times of Frank Balisteri, books on casino games, and much more. You can buy the Kindle and save even more money. Go to MilwaukeeMob.com. That's MilwaukeeMob.com. That's MilwaukeeMob.com. If you're a diabetic, we have great news. You can end the painful finger sticks with a new CGM. Plus, they may be covered by Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance. If you test and inject daily, you may qualify. Call U.S. Med now to learn more. 800-437-1424. 800-437-1424. That's 800-437-1424. Did Louis the Coin really soak the sheets with red wine in Rome? Yes. Did he really tell a federal court after testing positive for cocaine in his 70s that he only used coke for sex? Yes. Well, you can get these tales and more in the great book, You Thought It Was More, Adventures of the World's Greatest Counterfeiters. It's available now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or at louisthecoinbook.com. That's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or at louisthecoinbook.com.
Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Darius Kamali, who in 2000 transitioned into the world of television as a writer, consultant, and segment of series producer on programs including Top Secret Missions of the CIA, King Leopold's Ghosts, American Fighter Pilot, and The Kings, airing on the History Channel, A&E, PBS, and CBS. It really becomes deeper. A lot of people think it's, it begins and ends of politics, but this you've thought a lot about this, and this gets really deep into the way we define ourselves. And Are we sort of losing our own identities, do you think, as, as these groups are becoming more and more important? Do we sort of forget that we are who we are? Uh, to some extent, we have. I mean, uh, it, it, look, it, it's, it's, it's ingrained in us, right? I think uh, identity... Uh, you can look at it as a social construct, but I think it's deeper than that. I think uh, even prior to human beings' existence in the evolutionary chain, genes compete with each other, species compete with each other, and so belonging to a group is a is an important part of defining yourself against other groups is an important part of biology. So my solution is not to try and pretend that that doesn't exist. It does exist. But like many things that exist, um, we should also see it, the, the way that it can become problematic. Uh, you know, violence exists, right? Crime right. exists. But it doesn't mean that we can't say as a society this is something that we're going to use our institutions to fight against. And we're not quite there with this one. We're very schizophrenic as a culture, I would say. But so sometimes if, if, if it's presented the right way, as you and I are talking right now, it seems like an obvious truism. Right. But you put it another way, and someone says, you know, America first or Italy first. I don't want me, me to pick any nation. And so the question then becomes, if I don't know a person in Detroit, and I've never met them, and I don't know a person in Zimbabwe, I've never met them, why should they be valued differently? <laughs> you know, person <laughs> yeah. of, all else being equal, of course. Of course, one could be an astronaut, the other one could be a serial killer. But you know what I mean. Right, uh, exactly. If you don't know those basics. One thing you talk about, which I find interesting, that kind of falls into this, is this is where political correctness fails. And the whole concept of political correctness, again, goes to pull that. Somebody, I always think the problem with political correctness is somebody has to decide what's politically correct, and that's the problem. One person's political correctness is somebody else's, uh, I don't know, something that they Absolutely. just don't believe Look, I agree with you. Uh, and by the way, uh, again, not to try to ride the fence here, Political correctness has become a term that's sort of used by the right, usually to to describe the left, uh, and that, I think that's that's legitimate. Um, but both sides, uh, all sides, I should say, have their own politically correct issues or taboos or third rails, things that can't be touched. Right? For the right, it might be the veterans or the flag or something right. like that, and for the left, it could be gender, right, um, or sexuality, things that you're not supposed to talk about. And, you know, as, as I say in Mistake of Identity, nothing uh, that's uh, at all political can even approach being true. Because once an idea becomes ideology, it becomes calcified, right? Then, then you are sort of going along with it because that's what your team believes. That's what your side believes. Your ego becomes invested into the idea, and you're not just looking at it as uh, as a... Um, you know, two plus two equals four or five. It's now uh, part of the part of the narrative that your side has to keep up. 
right? Yeah. And once you uh, get to that stage, it's very hard to communicate with people when, uh, you know, identity essentially, and, and I, uh, <laughs> I didn't mean this uh, originally as a pun, but now I, uh, I'm, I, I think maybe subconsciously I did. Identity same, seems to trump all, right? <laughs> right, right, uh, right. Well, you know, one of the right. things I always I, think about is it's obvious in politics, but even in society, it's gotten to the point that there's like a laundry list of things that you have to believe if you're on the right or if you're in this group. And, and on the left, it's the exact opposite. You can't have one right on some and left on the other. And I'm using that term, but it could, it could fall to everything. Is that a, kind of what you're talking about, too, where you lose identity? It becomes that somebody, again, and it gets into the political correctness, decides what's okay and what's not. And you can't be a free thinker. You kind of lock yourself into one closet or the other. That's right. You know, that's right. I personally lost friends from junior high and childhood even these days because, you know, uh, I guess they didn't uh, consider me sufficiently uh, ideological, right, enough. And I think that's happened to so many of us. Uh, there's hardly a family uh, around the nation that doesn't have someone in it, um, you know, who's had a, a problem with another family member based on politics these days to the point where, you know, they can't even sit around the Thanksgiving table, right? Uh, and, of course, with our media being completely bifurcated and with social media, uh, uh, obviously, basically what's happening is that people are self-censoring in a way, number one, mm-hmm. and they're also weeding out people who don't agree with them, number two. Yeah. So if you're on Facebook or Twitter, whatever the case may be, pretty soon the group that you have are, are people who are echoing what you believe. And you have begin to imagine that's, that's how everyone thinks. Right. So these thought bubbles, uh, this has always existed, of course, but it's just come to the fore, and it's so much more extreme partly because of social media. It didn't start with social media. It's just exacerbated it, I would say. More with Darius Kamali, who is currently editing the manuscript for his very first novel, a mytho-philosophical fantasy for children of all ages, entitled The Still Life, The Moving Picture, and The Distance Between. Time to visit the vintage Vegas crime blotter with Mr. Big. Today's topic, the influence of the Vegas mob on international affairs. What are the connections between the mob, Las Vegas, and the Jewish homeland of Israel? Well, let's ask Mr. Big. Interesting you bring that up because to me, I always want to know more about the early days of the state of Israel. I mean, here you have Israel after the Second World War, the, the refugee homeland for the, to the Jewish population in Eastern Europe after the horrific horrors they went through in the Second World War. They're not doing good at all. They start going to Israel under the British mandate to see what they can do there. One of the things they needed a lot of is a lot of help, especially economic help. They had a lot of intelligence, a lot of intelligent people, a lot of hardworking men and women, but they needed money. How do they get that money? Well, you look at Las Vegas, you look at all the Jewish gangsters, such as Mylansky, Bugsy, and others who had connections with these casinos, who could have some money stick to their fingers and maybe see that money over there. That would explain a lot of the money that they got in order to buy arms. Oh, maybe these arms came from the Jewish masters in the United States. So how do you come up with machine guns and airplanes even? Somebody had to buy those, that equipment. It wasn't cheap. It didn't come out of stove, but out of cereal boxes, right? Is what actually helped. Did the Jewish masters in the United States give to their brethren in the state of Israel? 
Thanks, Mr. Big. We'll have yet another story from the Vintage Vegas Crime Blotter next week. And remember, you can always check out everything about Mr. Big at MilwaukeeMob.com. He's got books on crime, gambling, some really cool merchandise. Check it out. It's at MilwaukeeMob.com. And don't forget to listen to Sports Rock and Tours for the very best in classic sports, available wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchi nationwide on the Talk Media Network. Hey everybody, this is Sam Riddle and you are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi, and I'm chatting with Darius Kamali, who helped produce the Annie Award-nominated animated feature, Igor, starring John Cusack. He went on to help produce The Hero of Color City, starring Christina Ricci, and Bunyan and Babe, starring John Goodman and Mark Hamill. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because the idea originally of social media was, wow, this is going to be this great uh, middle of the street where anybody can come up and say what they want and people can discuss it. And it's turned into exactly what you say where, nope, it's an echo chamber. I only want to hear from people that agree with me. And I think you, That's you right. hit on something. Uh, uh, the, the anti-social media, right? It should be a more descriptive right. term for it. Yeah, there's not much uh, social about it these days. And like I said, I don't, I don't, I'm not a Luddite. I believe in technology and I think it still has a enormous potential. There's so much information out there, but most people are not. You have to be actively searching it rather than having something come to you, right? You know, I, I worked for a search engine uh, some years back briefly. That was uh, The technology was sold to Google, and I remember at that point, none of us really thought about the implications to the extent that it's become apparent now. But, um, you know, uh, now uh, we are realizing that when, when one person puts in a Google search, Exact same search term, same spelling. If you do a Google search and I do, we will not get the same top results because the algorithm is looking at what they think we're interested in and biasing that. And so even when we're looking at to find basic facts about the world, you and I may not be seeing the same thing. Yeah. And that's a very scary thought, right? <laughs> it really is. So I got to ask you, I mean, you think about this a lot. You also come from the world of film and television. Is there something that can be done to kind of, you're not going to change it exactly to where we want to see or the perfect world from an individual standpoint or so forth, but is there a way to kind of turn the road a bit so we're not quite so, uh, you know, instead of splitting, we're getting a little bit closer. Maybe there's, for somebody that wants it, there's a little more opportunity to uh, see what the other side thinks and kind of think about it without uh, having to fall into line one way or another. Look, there has to be, and, and I don't, there's, there's been plenty of essays written and technical solutions proposed. It's not that it's, uh, and, and like you said, no one is asking for some sort of utopian situation. We'll never have that. But can it be improved? Absolutely. The reason it, it isn't being is because the powers that be, and those are usually financial interests, uh, feel like uh, the model that they have now makes them more money. 
Exactly. <laughs> setting people against each other, uh, uh, you know, uh, makes more money for that company and making it more uh, sticky, as, as the terminology goes, or essentially using the fact that our, our brain gets, uh, releases some dopamine each time we get a like or whatever the case may be. Um, that is based on either a subscription model or, a, or an advertising model. That's what makes the money. And so the only way for that to happen is, is government going to step in and regulate this? You know, that has its own set of right. problems. Right. Are these companies going to uh, uh, change their model because they're good people? <laughs> uh, it's problematic, right? I think ultimately the solution really, as far as I'm concerned, the better solution, the ideal solution, would be to train people uh, in the basics of reason and logic. You know, we don't teach logic, or uh, certainly not before the college level. It, it just doesn't exist in high school. Or I think it, even in elementary school we should teach that. We should teach the basic fallacies, right? How to, uh, how to formulate a, a valid and a sound argument. Well, I think you're really on to something, because there were a few liberal arts colleges at one time, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find them, but where they would teach strictly by the Socratic method and ask questions. And the idea was there wasn't a right or wrong answer, but you you were taught to think that way. I mean, that's, you know, law school is certainly like that. And now I think we're finding exactly the opposite, where not only are we being taught a particular philosophy, but also... If you don't go along with the philosophy in some places, it can really hurt you. You can you can either flunk out or worse. That's exactly correct. I mean, that's correct across academia more than ever, and perhaps it always has been. But uh, I, I would say, based on my experience, it's, I, it seems to be worse. Uh, yeah, I think I think if you teach children from an early age and a you know age appropriate version, of course, the basics of of reasoning and critical thinking. Uh, which we're not in most schools, maybe some private schools, but certainly the public schools aren't doing anything close to that, uh, then you are, uh, to some extent, inoculating the children from being susceptible to this garbage. Uh, and that's probably the best way. Um, the, uh, rather than imagining that we can change uh, all the institutions out there, you can't get rid of all the potential harms, but you can inoculate people. And even that's not a perfect solution, of course, because we're more emotional beings than we are rational, right? Certainly it can, it can begin to improve the situation. I'm all for teaching critical thinking from an early age uh, in public schools. Right now, uh, you know, if you take philosophy or, if you, like you mentioned, law, uh, obviously that it's, uh, it's taught extensively. But unless you specialize in that, certainly not before the college level, it's, it's not anything that's... Uh, and, you know, there may be a reason for that, you know, to get conspiratorial about it. Again, the powers that be may not want the citizenry to be critical thinkers. They may want them just to be educated enough to run the machinery and sort of that's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what it's funny because that's what George Carlin, who I think was actually a great philosopher yeah. as long as a comedian, he used to talk about that. You know, they just want oh you to be God. able to do what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he absolutely did. And, you know, several others... Uh, these days in the in the comedy circuit, you know, the, the, the comedians seem to be our philosophers now, right? Yeah, right. And it's hard pressed to find uh, somebody that, that, again, that can kind of think with an open mind. I mean, you know, that's why Dave Chappelle, it's amazing he gets such pushback. Yeah. I think that's a free thinker, you know? He, he really is. More in just a moment with Darius Kamali, who during the global pandemic published his first book of poetry, Dog Whistling Dixie Past the Graveyard, and launched a history-related podcast called The Persian Version. 
Let's face it, your Vegas insider, Scott Robin, knows more about what's happening around town than anybody. And that means he also knows when some of the news is really dumb. You know, one thing you have on Vital Vegas that we all love are the lists. And you always have lists from time to time. One of my favorites are the dumb lists. As you had the 21 dumbest things from the last year and stuff. And I went through those, as I always do, and picked out a few that I wanted to talk about. One of the things I notice in this list is there's this desire in Las Vegas to proclaim things that you know aren't going to happen, right? And you had a couple in here, so let's talk about that. The Moon Resort, and for that matter, that dreaded train that's going from uh, L.A. to Las Vegas in 30 minutes, you know, that you you can skip the plane. Uh, I've been hearing about that for uh, really as long as I've been going to Las (laughs) Vegas. What is it? Is is it wishful thinking? Hitting the big one? What is it? (laughs) Well, it's funny you should mention this article because Vegas is – wonderful. Uh, I think it's the, there's a lot of dumb stuff too. And I think, uh, these are great examples of dumb stuff. The, the moon resort was one that's, I think been floated every 10 years for at least 30 years, some ungodly amount of money, like $6 billion to build a, a moon shaped resort. It's just so dumb. There's literally no indication they have any financing for it that it's ever going to happen, but they, they roll out these renderings and every news outlet reports it like it's coming, and then it just kind of everybody just forgets. Well, I, I'm not a forgetter. If there's something stupid, I'm going to put it on the blog for posterity. Uh, the train now is a little more complex because while I think it's dumb and that it will not happen, I've been talking to people who actually think there's hope that this train from Southern California to Las Vegas could somehow magically mystically appear. Um, And as you said, this has been, I've heard people say they've been talking about it for, again, 30 or 40 years, which is astonishing. There's new parties involved. They are highly optimistic. They think the government's going to give them a big chunk of change. I'm doubtful about that. But uh, as you dig into the specifics of the train, it sounds like I'm going to give it a 1% chance. I still think it's dumb. Uh, but there's there's no shortage of things for the for the dumb Vegas list. Trust me. Thanks, Scott. Make sure to visit Scott's site, VitalVegas.com, for the latest on Vegas happenings. It's a must-read. VitalVegas.com. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchi, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. Let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps. We are talking with Darius Kamali, who last year wrote Mistake of Identity, a genre-bending book of philosophical and political musings. We have grown up in a situation where there's a narrative that's pushed, and if you don't agree with that narrative, you're a bad person. And, and you know, so there's, there's always going to be the rebels out there, but you'd be surprised how much self-censorship people end up doing in order to, uh, even on social media, if something, you know, is attacked, if it doesn't get the likes, then the next day you're going to go softer or try to, and you really have to consciously fight against that. Yeah. And all our media, of course, whether it's, you know, the cable news outlets, whether it's Fox or CNN or MSNBC, I think everyone would agree that very slowly, uh, like the proverbial frog that doesn't realize that it's being boiled <laughs> in water because the temperature is being increased just one degree at a time, have become entirely, entirely opinion-based. Exactly. And not just opinion, but literally telling you what you ought to think. So yeah. they don't have panels of people who disagree. They have panels of people who support the choir, basically the choir yeah. to what the host is saying. So and advocacy has replaced journalism. Advocacy, then. yeah. And, and there is a, there's room for that. But if that's where most people are going for their news, then, you know, we've got a problem. Yeah, and you're right. I want to ask you one last thing. This is all fascinating stuff, and I think it really rears its ugly head in this idea of cancel culture. In Las Vegas, one of the big things was the football coach literally getting run out of town because of something he wrote, stupid as it was, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And it's like, if we're going to start going back into people's histories, we're going to have real problems because things change, you know? And, and, and it's almost like you're not allowed to evolve. You just have, you have to be perfect from birth. And that's an impossibility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't expect I'll be perfect even uh, at death, let alone, <laughs> uh, Right. Yeah. Again, to paraphrase uh, Mark Twain poorly, uh, anybody who wants to cancel me, I wouldn't want not to be canceled by. You know, but uh, <laughs> um, but look, in all seriousness, the point of being an independent author uh, is that they really can't cancel you. Uh, not yet. They haven't found a way. You know, if people want to buy my book, and I'd be happy and grateful. Look, the, the more you try to suppress an idea, the more it'll end up popping up in the strangest of places, maybe in the middle of your own head. And so I don't think uh, even from the perspective of the want-to-be canceller that, that that method really works. Ideas are out there, and people are bright enough uh, to know um, that uh, you, can't, you can't really crush an idea. You, you can deplatform someone, but they'll, just like how it's happening now, if Twitter cancels, well, there, there'll be another platform, an anti-Twitter, whatever the case may be. Right. Ideas will out in the end, right? Well, you got to read these two books. It's Mistake of Identity, and then the other one is Dog Whistling Dixie Past the Graveyard. 
Both great books. You're going to have a lot of fun with them. Mostly both available on Amazon. <laughs> right. I was going to say you get them on. You can get them on Amazon, and uh, I think you should because these are things that you can have fun with. If nothing else is going to get you to think, and I always feel better. Even if I disagree with the stuff, I always feel better. If, well, I hadn't thought of it that way, and it, it even helps. The, you know what we're talking about there. If you understand somebody else's viewpoint. It helped. It, it maybe it reinforces yours, but at least you're doing it from a you. You've thought about it from all sides instead of what you were told. Absolutely, you know, suppressing ideas is like uh, trying not to think of that proverbial pink elephant. Uh, I mean, maybe <laughs> it's doable, but uh, it takes a lot out of a person. So, uh, yeah. Now, thank you very much. Um, uh, they're both available on Amazon, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I did too, and Darius, we have to have you on again. This was great. Thank you so much for being I with love us. That. Thank you. Time now to begin looking at something that's familiar to everybody all around the world, and that's the Strips architecture. It's iconic and also always evolving. But did you realize since the 1940s it's mirrored American culture? We're going to discuss this with an expert in the field who has studied the Vegas Strip in detail. Well, those of you that live in Las Vegas or visited Las Vegas over the years and stuff know that the Strip, the key road in Las Vegas, of course, has changed back from the mid-20th century. It's gone through changes and so forth. Well, there's a fascinating book out right now that talks about the architecture and how that architecture really kind of follows how our culture has changed. The author is Stefan Al. He is a Dutch architect and urban designer. Well, Stefan, Welcome to the show. This really, the way you describe it, the Strip really is a way through the architecture there that we can study our own history. Yeah, thanks, Stephen, and thanks for the invitation. Uh, yeah, I, that's what I uh, I found because um, because it's so so dependent on uh, tourists, the Strip, and and outsiders, uh, and that uh, Las Vegas developers from the beginning uh, had a very close pulse on what was trending and what was new and cutting edge. Uh, and all these uh, latest trends you see reflected uh, on the strip as soon as they uh, happen. Uh, and that's why, you know, if you write a history of the strip, it's almost a history of American culture and, and architecture as a whole. Let's go through that history then. Uh, let's start out in the old days, back in the you know the forties and so forth. It really we were looking at the old Wild West, right, in a ranch type of town. So how do you see it then? Was that kind of the country, you know, post World War II, kind of getting ready for the what, the new inventions that were going to come in the twentieth and twenty first centuries? So the the first casinos uh, on the Strip in uh, the early nineteen forties. They were uh, kind of dressed up like uh, Western saloons, like Wild West uh, uh, types uh, casinos, like like the El Rancho and the Last Frontier. The Last Frontier even had its own uh, theme park. Before uh, Disneyland uh, existed in Los Angeles, Las Vegas already had its own theme park, and it was part of a casino. It had all these uh, kind of uh, cowboys walking around. It, it had uh, these... Uh, Kind of Western style architecture. Uh, it had like relics from uh, from the 18th and 19th century. It had uh, uh, mining trains, uh, and all of it was for free. Uh, so that you know, the idea was like people would go uh, into the casino after they visited the, the theme park. 
But uh, why that's reflective at, at the time? Because at the time, uh, there was a, a large interest in, uh, in Wild Western uh, movies. Um, and uh, that's why the first developers kind of used this uh, image of the Wild West to, to cater to tourists because it was popular. But then after the Second World War, uh, they completely abandoned the Wild West for this new image that then uh, becomes more popular. Uh, and, and this is reflective of kind of overall societal changes that happened in the United States at the time. After the Second World War, uh, American soldiers uh, returned from the war and uh, the United States uh, government is uh, helping people to, to own homes. And there's a big uh, transition uh, in which people move from the cities to the suburb. It's a nationwide uh, suburbanization from uh, kind of the, the frost belt to the sun belt. Uh, cities and suburbs. And this goes hand in hand with a new architectural style. And Los Angeles was at the forefront of these new uh, buildings that catered to the rise of the car. And uh, they had driving coffee shops and, and restaurants. Uh, and as a result, uh, the Las Vegas developers, they, they kind of copy that style and they make it their own. And and, and for instance, one, one thing that's really typical that happened around the time is sort of a race for the most sumptuous and most interesting uh, pool. So mm-hmm. as Americans start to move to suburbs and uh, move into single-family uh, homes, they also kind of desire uh, a large pool, and, and this pool becomes very central in uh, the Las Vegas casino complex after the war, like in the late 40s and the, and the 50s. And Las Vegas developers try almost every uh, every shape and every letter in the alphabet, and some uh, some pools even had uh, underwater music, and there were floating craps ta- tables and poolside slot machines. Uh, but the architecture looked completely different from the Western um, uh, phase, in that it was very sleek, modern lines, a lot of glass, uh, concrete. These were the kind of the latest. Um, car-oriented buildings that were um, emerging, um, uh, particularly in, in Los Angeles, and they, they now uh, had a form on the Las Vegas Strip. Thanks, Stefan. We'll continue with Stefan again next week. You can get his book, The Strip, Las Vegas and the Architecture of the American Dream, at Amazon Books. Coming up next is Sports Rock and Tours. Go to Sports R-A-C-X, wherever you listen to podcasts, that's Sports, R-A-C-X. It's short for Sports Rock and Tours. And please follow both Vegas Never Sleeps and Sports Rock and Tours on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchie reminding you, Vegas Never Sleeps. Las Vegas, here we go!